I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're a Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week, we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And in season two, we told you all the secrets about Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars. For season three, we're introducing you to the women that Bill got burned by and ultimately changed the alcohol industry. Make sure you add us on social media at a tap on the wrist. We are so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Hi everyone, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Laura. And welcome to a tap on the wrist. I don't even know what episode this is. What are we on? 67, I feel like. I think it's 68. I thought we started on 65 is the only reason I said 67. But whatever episode it is. Oh yeah, it is 67. You're right. (laughs) I did quick math in my head. I added two. (laughs) Um, But we're glad that you're with us today. Um, Last week was a fun week because it was actually our first guest episode. Yes, which was an experience to record because we had never done that before. And so that was really fun. And it was Tori, who is so lovely and did such a great job sharing her story. So, yeah, um, I'm excited for like future guest episodes. I know. And I'm excited for the possibility of having a guest episode that we can record in person. Because of course what? we had to record. <laughs> of course we had to record with Tori remotely because you know COVID is still a thing. Um, but one day, I'm so much closer to getting vaccinated. Laura's already vaccinated. It's wild. I it feel is like wild. Everyone is like, I feel like almost everyone I know either has an appointment or has already started their vaccination process. Besides, like a very small percentage of people. So glorious. I am ready to like start doing things. (laughs) (laughs) While we record this episode, um, which we did record in person, if the audio sounds a little off, it is because we are recording remotely our intro outro because Vanessa, aka me, is in quarantine right now um, for traveling to Florida. Not She's for spring an break. Not She's for an spring animal. Break. It was for a family thing. I was not. I was not being wild. Um, she actually follows the rules so much that New York has removed the mandatory quarantine, and she's still following it. Yep, I have because... three more days. I felt like, why not? <laughs> also, I got a text again today asking them to confirm, asking to confirm I was in quarantine, and I was like. Why are they still sending this if it's over? It must just be like delayed in the system or something. I don't know. But I did have to confirm again that I was quarantining today. But has well, been harassed by the New York State. I have. Quarantine yeah. officials. I have gotten so many text messages. I got a couple of calls where I have to confirm that I'm quarantining. It's wild. This didn't happen. I tra- the last time I traveled was like months ago. And it was like height of coronavirus. And they didn't talk to me as much as they, they did this time. It was weird. 
that's because you went to Florida during spring break times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This girl, party animal. Ugh, I am not. I am not. But while we recorded this episode, we were drinking um, a tasty but simple cocktail. Um, a friend of the podcast, shout out to Lee. Um, I feel like I feel like he gave this to me like two years ago. I don't. I, it just feels like it was a long time ago, but that might be because of COVID. Well, I think he gave it to you as like a podcast like kickoff gift so it would have been like like a year and a half ago yeah probably um but it is a coca-cola signature mixer and I was saving it for a special occasion and this was it um so basically it's it's like a glass bottle of coke but it has like hints of other things in it so this one was called spicy and it was batch number two spicy and it had hints of lime, ginger, rosemary, jasmine, and jalapeno. Um, and so we took that and we mixed it with some whiskey. And uh, it was very smooth. It was, it was very smooth. Um, and I said to Laura, I don't think we mentioned it at all while we were recording the actual episode. So that's why I wanted to throw it in now. But know that it is what we were drinking when we were recording these stories. Yes. <laughs> and it was interesting. I didn't... I didn't realize that Coca-Cola did these mixer things. I didn't either. And I also don't typically associate spicy drinks with whiskey. Mm -hmm. Like a spicy drink to me is very like tequila, like a spicy margarita. So to have like that hint of jalapeno with whiskey uh, was pretty good. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I feel like I would get like an aftertaste of ginger while I was drinking it, um, which was nice because I like ginger. I guess if you don't like ginger, that's not great, but. <laughs> and ginger goes I, very well with whiskey. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so really cool. Definitely if you like Coca-Cola, if you're a Coke drinker, um, look for them because it's like an interesting, I feel like you could do a rum and Coke with it. Like they have different varieties with like different signature flavors. Um, so just to give like a little twist to mixing Coke with alcohol. Okay. Now that you've talked about Coca-Cola, I have to share this TikTok that I saw with you. Okay. Okay. So this woman is in a drive-thru and stop me if you've seen it or don't, cause I've started. So now I have to finish. But this woman <laughs> is in a drive-thru and she orders, she's like, um, can I get a Pepsi? And the guy working is like oh I'm sorry we only have coke and she's like okay I'll get a gram but it was like so <laughs> flawless <laughs> like I, it took me a second to process so for her to it, come up with it that quickly it's it was so flawless and seamless that like it's just funny when you watch it in person because yeah. she I don't know and I mean I guess maybe it was staged because like who has their cell phone recording that. Right. You're right. But it was so funny. I still laughed. (laughs) Oh man. I love TikTok. So stupid. (laughs) All right. Well, this week we have two exciting stories for you about two more ladies that have ties to alcohol. Um, We hope you enjoy it. 
Yes, and make sure that you check out all the pictures that go with the stories on our social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. So you can check out all the pictures that go with the ladies of today's stories there. All the pictures. All <laughs> and you, you can also email us if you know of any badass ladies that have any ties to alcohol. Um, if you know of any cool distilleries or bars that have ties to females, please let us know. Um, you can give us a shout at tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. You ready? Let's get into it. Let's go. So my story today isn't one that would typically be thought of when you think of women and alcohol. Okay. <laughs> but it does involve a woman and alcohol, so. <laughs> okay. Um, well, that's good. <laughs> so this is the story of a woman named Lydia E. Pinkham, and I'm going to set the stage by reading this ad for you. Okay. Okay. Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound is a positive cure for all those painful complaints and weaknesses so common to our best female population. It will cure entirely the worst form of female complaints, all ovarian troubles, inflammation and ulceration, falling and displacements, and the consequent spinal weakness and is particularly adapt to the change of life. It's a much longer article. We'll post the whole thing. I mean, add. But wow, it is um, very long. Vanessa's scrolling, it's a full page. It basically continues to list all the things that it uh will cure things like flagellancy, um, weakness of the stomach, bloating, headaches, sleepiness, depression, indigestion. I didn't want to sit here and read this entire thing to you, but I wanted you to get an idea, a little taste. Okay, so it's a cure all, it's a cure all, um, for women specifically. Uh, you could. Buy it for $1 or six bottles for $5. Wow, that's a bargain. Uh, it, it comes in the form of pills or lozenges. I mean, what more could I ask what for? What more could you ask for? Um, so and if I mention this paper, what do I get? You, it's, I don't know. It says send for pamphlet, address, mention this paper. Yeah. Uh, maybe I get You get a, your pamphlet. I guess. Yeah. And it says here, Miss Pinkham freely answers all letters of inquiry. So, how does she have time on her hands? That's a good question. Um, but yeah, so that's. I just wanted to like give you a little sample for what what the story is going to be about. Um, there are also many other ads. We'll, we'll obviously post a couple of them, but like some of them say things like a baby in every bottle. <laughs> okay. Because it was supposed to help, you know, your system, your lady system. (laughs) So then I would be better prepared for babies. Yep, yep. Um, Because that's that's how I define my worth. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, man. (laughs) Um, Honestly, though, no shade to Lydia. She was, you know, a badass businesswoman in her own right. She was an inventor. um, And she was very much into like women's rights and you know some of her mottos were women can sympathize with women and health of the woman is the hope of the race so like she really felt strongly about helping other women and women supporting women and like you know women's health um 
Plus, her products are actually still sold today in a modified form. Um, it, it's possible that our listeners have have heard of it. You know, Miss Pinkham's Vegetable Compound. I'm pretty sure it still goes by the same name. Um, but they were way more popular back in the day than they are now. And one of the most significant changes from then to now is probably the fact that back then her product had a significant amount of alcohol in it. <laughs> and sadly, it's no longer true. So let's take let's take a look back uh, and see how her life uh, began and how she got to a place where she was selling alcohol-based products to women all over America. I'm I'm ready. <laughs> so Lydia Pinkham was born Lydia Estes, and she was the daughter of William Estes and his second wife Rebecca Chase. She was born on February 9th of 1819 in Lynn, Massachusetts, which I feel like we may have been to. It's like in that Salem. I actually think that's where our Airbnb yeah. was. Yeah, <laughs> I was, I was going to say that, but then I wasn't 100% sure. Laura and I have been there. <laughs> um, and her father was a farmer and a shoemaker, um, but he actually became pretty wealthy from real estate investments. And... Because of that, Lydia was lucky enough to receive, like, a formal education. Um, she actually ended up becoming a teacher, which was her career from 1835 to 1843. Um, and she was a pretty progressive lady for her times. She was, as... I've already noted, very involved in women's rights and also was very anti-slavery. Um, she and her family actually left the Quaker faith because they didn't believe that their platform against slavery was firm enough. So like, even though they've been Quakers all their lives, they were like, peace out, bastards. <laughs> um, and she was actually very good friends with some famous people, including Frederick Douglass, who had, was actually a lifelong friend of hers. Can you imagine just having been friends <laughs> with Frederick Douglass? <laughs> this is my buddy. All my life. <laughs> this is so crazy. I know. Um, so, I mentioned that she was a teacher until 1843, uh, when she stopped being a teacher because she got married. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so she married a widower named Isaac Pinkham, um, and kept the E for Estes. That's why she's Lydia E. Pinkham. You know, she had, to, she had to keep her maiden name in there. Um, and in addition to his daughter from his first marriage, because he was a widower, um, the couple would go on to have five children, though one of them dies in infancy. So she raises her, you know, four four children, three sons and one daughter, I believe. But times were hard for the Pinkhams. Isaac was a shoemaker like her father and also like her father tried his hand at real estate, but he was never quite as successful. And the family had a lot of financial struggles. Um, and shit really hit the fan for them during the Panic of 1873, which I had actually never heard of. I don't know if you have, you know more about history than me. Um, but it seems a little similar to like the Great Depression in a way. It's, um, according to the people source, it was a financial crisis that triggered an economic depression in Europe and North America that lasted from 1873 to 1877 or 1879 in France and in Britain. So, it really affected them. Yeah. I mean, I don't know a lot about it, but I don't know much about economic 
Just, that's not your thing. That's not what I study. <laughs> um, so during the panic, Isaac lost all of his money and was also sued for non-payment of debts. So like, when really not doing well. When you're down and they kick you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, their son, Daniel, lost his grocery store to the whole collapse. Um, and so by 1875, the entire family was nearly destitute and looking for a way to stay afloat. Now, for about 10 years, Lydia had been concocting a little home remedy uh, for her and her family and friends. It was made of roots, herbs, and like 18 to 20% alcohol. <laughs> no big. No big. Uh and she said the alcohol served as a solvent and preservative for the herbs and roots. I, I trust that. I think that's actually probably pretty accurate. Um, so Lydia had become a follower of nutrition reformers like Sylvester Graham of the Graham Cracker uh, and Samuel. <laughs> Did you just laugh? Well, because you were like nutrition reformers, like Sylvester Graham, and in my head I was like, who the fuck is that? And then, then you said, of the Graham Cracker, and I was like, oh, it's like, it's like you could hear my inner monologue going, am I supposed to know that person? But I do know of Sylvester Graham. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was he the guy that had like really weird sex things? <laughs> Like, he didn't believe in sex. I don't... It was weird. I don't... Like, he didn't have sex with his wife. I don't... You I don't know, know if far I'm, more I don't about know the Graham Cracker man. <laughs> You're like, I just know the results of his labor. <laughs> I just know what Graham Crackers are. <laughs> I only know they make delicious campfire <laughs> treats. <laughs> oh, my oh, God. Oh, no. I think I might be thinking of the cornflakes guy. <laughs> guy or the graham cracker guy who like was trying to make their food bland so that people wouldn't be sexually excited or something <laughs> i don't know we might have to cut this all out we absolutely are not cutting this out um so yeah she she followed reformers like sylvester graham and samuel thompson who i don't know who that is um, I should have looked it up. And she began experimenting with, like, different remedies. Um, but there was a rumor uh, that's pretty believed is that although she did kind of experiment and change it, the original formula actually came from a man, boo, mm -hmm. uh, who Isaac Pinkham had paid a debt to of $25, and he gave them this recipe, which... Uh, We're going to give her yeah, credit. Yeah, I'm going to give her credit. So she actually kept a personal notebook called Medical Directions for Ailments. Um, so like she kept track of all her recipes and she used a book called John King's American Dispensatory, uh, which provided an extensive list of herbs and their medical uses. So like she knew her shit, she knew about herbs, she knew about um, what, you know, what should be used for what ailments. Um, and I actually have a list of the ingredients from the original recipe, and I meant to look up how to pronounce these, and I just realized I never did. 
So, um, say it like you own it. (laughs) We're just, we're going to wing it. Um, and this is courtesy of an article from Thought Co. that had the list. I'm already confused by the first one when I look at it. I can pronounce it, but it says false unicorn root, comma, true unicorn root. What? A, what's unicorn root? And why is there false and true? (laughs) I, I don't know. Um, black cohish root is what I'm going for. Life root, can say that one. Pluriesy root. <laughs> sounds, sounds good. Fenugreek seed and alcohol. Fenugreek, that, that's an actual seed that's still, like I've seen that in recipes. Yes. Am I saying it right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I, this, this other root with the P. Um. Whew, no idea. Okay. But the newer, like the version that you can get now has instead dandelion root instead of the false and true unicorn root i guess boring (laughs) um the black cohish root or cohosh root um jamaican dogwood motherwort that p one again the pleurisy root we're gonna go with uh licorice root gentian root and sadly no alcohol boring boring no (laughs) unicorn root and no alcohol (laughs) I want the original. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm sure you can find all these things still, so you can make it yourself. <laughs> That's what we should have made today. <laughs> You're right. We should have made this. Oh, man. Missed opportunity. Okay. So since the people that she had shared this concoction with seemed to like really like it and think it worked, she decided that she was going to try and sell it to make her family a little cash. Um, so this happened in about 1875, a couple years into the panic. Um, and Lydia, so Lydia and her family decided to register a trademark for Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound. That's the name they went with. Uh, they copyrighted a label and her son Daniel suggested adding her picture um, because she looked very grandmotherly and like he thought, I guess people would like trust a like grandmotherly figure. Um, and she did that because like, Fuck yeah, put your face on your own product. I love it. Get it. Um, and she also patented the, patented the formula in 1876. Um, she named her son William the legal owner of the company. And at first I thought it was like, because he's a guy. But then I read that it was because he was the only one in the family that had no outstanding debts. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> makes sense. Um, the business started out small. Uh, in fact, before they did eventually expand to a production facility in Lynn in 1878, Lynn was brewing up the compound in her own like kitchen basement. So she was the one whipping it together in her kitchen and sending it out. Um, and while they did take out ads, especially in Boston newspapers, the family also sold the medicine door to door around New England and New York. They passed out pamphlets that they folded themselves. Uh, they had handbills and postcards. And the company's first piece of advertising was actually a four-page pamphlet called Guide for Women that Lydia wrote herself. Um, and Daniel kind of circulated on his mail route. Like he, I guess, delivered mail and just would drop off this pamphlet. Before he went big and decided to go to Brooklyn where he would just like fucking leave shit everywhere (laughs) he apparently just like he like his idea was to like just like throw the cards in like 
Prospect Park or wherever the hell he was. <laughs> um, <laughs> Buy my mom's medicine <laughs> for your lady problems. Um, however, a big break for them would come when a major patent medicine broker named Charles N. Crittenden uh, began to distribute the products because he was able to expand their business nationwide. Lydia was actually very involved with the company and especially with the advertisements. Um, she, like the one that I, I read at the top of the article, uh, she felt that the ads needed to be targeted to women directly. Um, and she stressed that the product was created by a woman because like, you know, who knows when, what women need more than women, right? Um, so the ads often read, a medicine for women invented by a woman, prepared by a woman. So like not only was it invented, but it was still being prepared by another woman. She just really wanted to connect with her audience. Um, she claims that her compound could bring about better health, a more vibrant sexuality, and greater fertility. Um, she was actually, from what I read, like pretty sexually open, which was different for her time. Um, and the idea of this really appealed to women um, because apparently a lot of women back then in the 19th century didn't feel super comfortable talking to their doctors about women issues, quote-unquote women issues, um, because as an article I read said, um, doctors often prescribed surgery and other unsafe procedures when, like, women had lady complaints. <laughs> this example makes me physically ill every time I say it. Um, one of the examples this article used was that doctors would apply leeches to the cervix or vagina. For leeches. what? Leeches For to relieve lady troubles. Like your period? Like, yeah, I guess like cramps and shit like that. You're going to put leeches? It freaks me out so much, just the thought of it. So like... So the, their point was, like, women wouldn't go to their doctors because they would do weird shit like this because they didn't oh, understand women. Yeah, I wouldn't go either. So, like, the fact that Lydia was advertising to them and being like, look at all these problems that I could help you with, like, was really appealing. Right. Um, there were some other remedies at the time called Dr. Pierce's Favorite Prescription and Wine of Cardu, I think it is. But... Lydia did have the advantage of being, like, a woman who invented it and, like, appealing directly to a female audience. Um, she actually, in her ads, kind of went off of that idea and would say things like, let doctors alone, which, I mean, I get, but, like, also probably isn't the best advice in all cases. But, like, she was basically saying, like, don't go to doctors, just use my medicine, it'll help you. So I have a question. I know, yeah. so you mentioned it came in like pills and lozenges. Yeah. But it is so much alcohol. Like, Yeah, it originally, sorry, that was a little confusing at the top, but it actually was originally a tonic, like a liquid. Okay. And they eventually um, will make it also in pill okay. and lozenge. Because I was like, I'm picturing now like a vial. Yes. Yeah. When they first started, it, it is okay. It is a vial of of tonic medicine. Of alcohol. Of alcohol. <laughs> I mean... That helps it my does cramps help. too. <laughs> Let's be real. Um, so as a personal touch, the ads 
as I said at the top, would often tell women to write to Lydia. Um, and they did a lot. And so one of Lydia's big responsibilities besides, you know, creating and doing the advertising was responding to the mail. She really did. She responded to it herself. Um, which I, I don't know how she had time. Well, I mean, but, that was her full-time job. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she didn't only focus on, like, her own medicine when she replied. She, according to one of the articles I read, wanted to counter the idea that women were weak. Which, like, yes, thank you. We're not weak. And so she began to off to give as much advice as she could on everything from, like, health and exercise um, to frank and accurate advice about women's bodies, their sex lives, and their relationships with their husbands. Like She's like that... That doctor. Dr. Ruth? Dr. Ruth. (laughs) Yep. The first Dr. Ruth. Totally. Um, And so she loved giving advice, and she started to receive so many letters that she began to write more pamphlets, like the one that she had originally released. Um, And they served as, like, both advertisements, of course, she would mention her medicine and its benefits, but also... They also served as like a sex education for women. She really did a lot of research on her topic. She didn't just like offhandedly be like, this is what you should do. Like she actually put research into everything, um, especially specific questions that people brought to her. She wouldn't just reply. She would really research the topic. Um, And then she would write in clear and simple language that the average woman could understand. And it was actually really great because a lot of women who again were scared to talk to doctors and of course like sexual dialogue wasn't really the thing back then. Um, don't say. <laughs> <laughs> so her pamphlets were like the first real information that women would get about things as simple as menstrual cramps or menopausal changes. Um, she talked about things like infertility, miscarriages, STDs. So things that were like not only important for women to know but that also made them feel more understood and like they weren't alone. You know, like people didn't really talk about infertility and like she did. So right. it was actually really helpful for the women that that got her pamphlets. She ultimately would actually, after all her research, write a book called Textbook on Ailments Peculiar to Women. And it was like the first time that like specific issues, problems, and concerns pertaining to female health by women were were laid out and of course she also offered treatment options like her medicine but but it was like also just a source she just opened the conversation yeah exactly um of course not everyone was a fan of her frankness and like it would cause like some problems for the company for example in 1900 right at the turn of the century the company was actually charged um in wilkie bear pennsylvania I don't know if that's how you say that city, sorry. But in Pennsylvania for violating obscenity laws um, because of this information that was in the ads and the pamphlets. But the company fought back and all charges of obscenity were dropped. So like they didn't have to stop, which was very 2021. Yeah. Like trying to fight someone for having an opinion. Yeah. (laughs) So as the business grew and gained more customers, they began to come up with other concoctions besides just the vegetable compound. They came up with Pinkham's liver pills to cure constipation, bilisness, and 
torpidity of the liver, uh, as well as an herb medicine that was used to stimulate appetite. And by 1881, like I said earlier, that was when they also started to use pills and lozenges besides just the tonic. So like six years after it started. The names could use some work. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Vegetable compound, I don't, you know. Just, I know. It's not my favorite name. Yeah. And it's, like, liver pills, I'm not. Uh, and just herb medicine? Yeah. I feel like the marketing should have been better, but, you know, she's lasted over 100 years, so. Yeah. I mean, despite the fact that they had, like, kind of dumb names, they did want to kind of retain like the home remedy by little grandma thing so even when they became commercialized and like you know there was a factory making it instead of her in her kitchen they still tried to keep like the label and the look of everything like homemade and you know that was that was their shtick and something that I actually really liked is that Lydia had the labels of her bottles and all of her pamphlets produced in English, Spanish, and French um, to appeal to a wider audience. So she was, you know, thinking of non-English speakers, which was really cool. Now, you would think that a lady that was peddling a heavily alcohol-formulated medicine would, would like alcohol. Um, but no, she actually was an active supporter of temperance. Oh, no. It's like her one fault. <laughs> Come on, Lydia. Um, and she claims that her medicine didn't break her temperance views because the alcohol was necessary to suspend and preserve the herbal ingredients. She's like, okay, Lydia, whatever. But when you think about it, it's actually not uncommon for supporters of temperance to accept alcohol for medical purposes. Um, as you know, if you listen to season two, even during U.S. Prohibition, using alcohol as medicine was legal. And while, yes, some articles did say that, like, women were affected by the heavy amount of alcohol, uh, I do want to note that for the most part it was really safe, especially compared to other medicines at the time and these cure-alls that had things like morphine and arsenic and opium and mercury in them. Like, alcohol wasn't that bad. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, so the women's temperance movement did not win that battle. And honestly, it wasn't just a bunch of hogwash. <laughs> That's my favorite new word. <laughs> um, a scientific analysis of the original recipe revealed that it contained currently accepted herbal remedies for symptoms of menstruation and menopause, uh, such as the black cohish root um, and the life root, and that fenugreek that you said you have heard of um, actually is used to increase milk supply, so like, you know, pregnant women, so, um, or women that have given birth. So a lot of these ingredients actually legitimately have scientific evidence as helping these symptoms. So she wasn't full of shit. As I had noted, she really did study she, all right, of like those She things. actually knew what she was making. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a woman named Tori Barnes-Bruce, who's an associate professor of sociology uh, at Cornell College, said, quote, some of the things in the compounds, like the black cohish, are still things that women who turned to alternative medicine would use today for hot flashes or to relieve symptoms of menopause. So like a lot of those things are still used today. 
obviously I said her thing still exist. Um, plus, to this day, there are box loads of genuine testimonials of Lydia's medicine in the archives of Radcliffe College. Like, real women's testimonials, not just, like, bullshit. People say this is great. <laughs> <laughs> women really felt like this helped them. And even though some people think that a lot of these rave reviews, again, were because of the high alcohol, alcohol content, um, which, like, is not wrong. Like, the alcohol did probably help to ease aches and to mask some of the symptoms. There still were good, there were still good roots and herbs in there. Right. So, sadly, things started to go downhill a little bit in 1881. Um, her two sons, Daniel and William, both died of tuberculosis. Um, it's around this time that the business was also formally incorporated, and Lydia, I guess, kind of stepped away from the business a little bit. Um, obviously devastated, both her sons had died, and I, it was noted that she would hold a lot of, like, seances and things to contact her sons, like she got really into spiritualism. Um, and sadly, a year later, 1882, she had a stroke and then died later that year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so RIP to Lydia. At the time of her death, her company sales were 300000 a year, um, and they were continuing to grow. Her son Charles, the last remaining of her sons, I believe, took over the business, um, and he hired a new advertising agent, um, and by the 1890s, the compound was the most advertised patent medicine in America. Um, the ads continued to use Lydia's picture, and they continued to ask people to write to her. Um, her daughter-in-law and later other staff members took over the duty of answering the letters. But this did get called out in 1905 by the Ladies Home Journal, who accused the company of misrepresenting the correspondence. Um, and their response was basically like, don't worry about it. Miss Pinkham now refers to Jeannie Pinkham, her daughter-in-law. Like, they mm. were just like... Even though they're still using her picture, so it was kind of misleading, they were like, no, no, it's just a new Miss Pinkham. So, following in her mother's footsteps to help women, uh, Lydia's daughter, Araline Pinkham Gove, uh, founded a clinic in Salem, Massachusetts in 1922 to serve mothers and children. She called it the Lydia E. Pinkham Memorial Clinic, which is... Cute. She so named cute. it after her mom. And people would get prescriptions for things like whiskey. So it's not that weird that she was a supporter of temperance and used alcohol, but right, come on, Lydia. And it's actually kind of funny because even though she was a supporter of temperance and thought this was fine, the women's temperance movement actually protested the level of alcohol present in the compound. Um, I don't think they were protesting that there was alcohol in it. I think it was just the amount from what I read. And the company's peak seems to have come around 1925, which I wonder if might have had a little bit to do with prohibition, like because there's so much alcohol in it. But sales were about three million at that time. Wow. Yeah. But shortly after 1925, Charles sadly also passed away, and this caused conflict over how to run the business. Plus, then, you know, the Great Depression kicks in, and then there are some federal regulations, like the Food and Drug Act, so that all affected the business, the claims they could make, the product that they could make itself. Right. Um, so, in 1968, the Pinkham family sold the company entirely. They no longer own it. Um, manufacturing moved to Puerto Rico, and then Newmark Laboratories acquired a license to the medicine in 
1987. Um, and they, they still own the license. And as I said, it can still be found in stores today in its modified form. So um, interesting. Yeah, I kind of want to try it. <laughs> Even though it's modified and not the original thing. I don't know. I just want to try it. So a fun side note that kind of ties in is that apparently Lydia and Her Medicine became the subject of a popular drinking song. Um, the folk song was called The Ballad of Lydia Pinkham, uh, also known as Lily the Pink. It, the original drinking song that it was later became, quote, sanitized, um, and it was recorded and became a number one hit for The Scaffold in the UK in 1968. 1969 and then another group called the Irish Rovers also released the scaffold version of the song in 1969 and it reached the top 30 on the US Billboard charts um and the only lyric I could find was from the sanitized version and it says we sing of Lydia Pinkham and her love of the human race how she sells her vegetable compound and the newspapers publish her face um because it was a big thing that like her face was always on everything Mm. But I'm sure there's a more interesting version out there, so if someone finds <laughs> it, let me know. Um, and that's that's the story to, story of Lydia Pinkham and her vegetable compound. Oh, you found it? You can buy it on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> Guess I know what I'm ordering from Amazon next. <laughs> 150 tablets. I thought you were going to say $150. No, no, it's only $18. <laughs> it's 150 tablets. They are... Today, it's called, it's Lydia Pinkham Herbal Supplement Tablets for Menstruation and Menopause. I wonder how, how are the reviews on Amazon? How many stars does it have? Almost five. Oh, wow. Yeah. Let me just find a review. Let me just scroll. Okay, okay. I just, I feel like this is going to be fun. Okay. Lydia Pinkham is superb. Five stars. (laughs) Lydia Pinkham is an old-fashioned supplement for hormones, menstruation, and menopause issues. I have used it before. It works wonderfully well. If I take what the doctors have to offer, I have problems, so I won't do that. This stuff is good. (laughs) Nice! Look at Lydia Pinkham still going. I know. I almost wish I had done this ahead of time and could pull, like, the best review instead of just... So if I find another really good one, we'll record it and add it in before we release the episode. You can keep scrolling while I say my sources. Maybe you'll find it. Um, So a big shout out to Thought Co. Um, They had a biography of Lydia Pinkham um, by Joan Johnson Lewis. And that was like my main source for the article. I also used an article from medium.com called A Baby in Every Bottle, Lydia Pinkham, Purveyor of Patent Medicine and Sex Education by Nina Sankovich. And lastly, I used an article called Was Lydia E. Pinkham the Queen of Quackery by Rebecca Rigo Berry. That's it. Uh, Like we said, I I almost read the whole ad at the top, but it's so long. But we'll put we'll post it online because it's it's okay, pretty entertaining. Here's one more review. Another another five star. The title is These Pills Helped Me Get Pregnant. Okay. So I mean Baby in a bottle. People love them. She it does actually have very good yeah. reviews. So I mean I guess if you're Yeah. How many reviews? Like is it in the thousands? This this particular size and bottle, it has 700 okay. reviews, but it's on here 
a bunch of times. Oh, yeah. So, let me see. I wonder if they still have lozenges. I don't know. I'm going to try it. They have the liquid version. Oh, okay. You can buy, like, yeah. Very cool. So, I know we said we weren't doing themes. (laughs) This was me last time. I Like, I was like, I know we're not doing themes, but... But our stories are kind of themed again. Of course they are. We're on the same wavelength. It just happens. (laughs) And today I am veering into like an unfamiliar territory for me on the podcast. I feel like I have assumed your role because I'm going a little bit true crime. Oh. And normally I stick to like the pretty like straight up like history, Uh sometimes boring, Unless you're me, um, <laughs> or whatever the theme is, but I heard about this story, and I became so fascinated with it, and I just had, I had to tell it. So today I am sharing the story of Julia Tofana, and her murderous ways, and her murderous ways. Yes. Murder. <laughs> um, have you heard of her before? I haven't. Okay. Um, But before we talk about her creations, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the art of poisoning. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're going to teach me? Yeah. (laughs) How to poison. Um, So, poison has been used throughout history since the beginning of time Mm -hmm. as a clean-ish way of getting rid of people you are no longer in need of. You like guns, a little bit too loud. Yeah. Knives, a little bit too messy. Yeah. But, so poison in history has kind of been nicknamed the inheritance powder um, because it's known as, like, the easiest way to kill someone off if you're trying to get an inheritance and not be caught. Yeah. Um, um, a- I always, I don't know why this popped into my mind. I've always wanted, not that I will use it, one of those rings that, like, you know, like those old timey rings that they put the poison in, and they would like just just dump, dump it, it in. I just want one, just to have it. Noted. <laughs> You're but, gonna be looking at my hand every time I start. Vanessa's birthday's in June. <laughs> um, and and then in history, a lot of people associate poison as like the women's weapon mm-hmm. um, because it I is clean and it's somewhat easy to administer mm-hmm. um and you know let's be real it's time efficient it's meticulous and you can plan it out right which for me fits my personality like, <laughs> like so if Laura's gonna murder <laughs> poison would be my weapon of choice <laughs> just note that um she's never drinking a cocktail <laughs> again. um okay So, one article I read claimed, and I quote, a goblet of wine suitably treated would be served and death would result at the appointed time. The poison of the bourgeois was reported to function with time clock precision. It is said that a drought could be prepared that would kill in a day, a month, or a year as desired. So, can you... Sorry, 
A drought could be prepared that could kill someone in a year? Well, there are some poisons that are not like... And the one I'm going to tell you about today is one where its first usage wasn't meant to kill that person. Oh, it'd have to be like repeated. It was repeated over time and it becomes like a slow method of murder. Um, Which... I'm guessing the person like slowly starts to get sick. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I'm, we're gonna tell you why. I'm gonna tell you why that was um, preferable in this situation. Okay. <laughs> but um, so I mean, if you if you want more control over the murder, <laughs> <laughs> okay, poison's a good option. Uh huh. Um. Okay, but let's get back to like today's specific tale. Okay. Um. The setting of my story takes place in 17th century Italy. And so if you're not super familiar with 17th century Italy, because I wasn't. You're um, not? <laughs> it wasn't really a ladies' world. Okay. Uh, in fact, at this time, the only way women could make money during this time was to get married. Mm-hmm. Option A. Yeah. Beg on the street. Option B. Or participate in sex work or prostitution, as it was called at the time. Option C. That was really it. Women were not allowed to own businesses. Women were not allowed to really... Men had all the control Mm -hmm. in Italy at the time. And in most places around the world at the time. Um, So, for that, many women, the majority, would choose option A. Marriage being the safest option. You marry to someone, then you share their wealth, and you can live a pretty, we would hope, easy lifestyle. But these marriages weren't based on love. In many cases, they were arranged um, or forced. And men and husbands had complete control over what their wives could do at the time. Uh, In many cases, that would play out with abuse physically and verbally Mm -hmm. um violence happened women at the time were basically option objects that were auctioned off and like quote unquote purchased for procreation Uh, men wanted heirs women were the only ones who could do that yep (laughs) so it was just kind of a sad time for women they had very little control over their own lives However, uh, and again, probably not a shock to many women um, or men listening either, healthcare was not a priority for anyone at the time. Yeah. And there were not as many scientific advances in 17th century Italy. Uh, So women who were used for like procreation machines would often die in childbirth or in other types of complications dealing with like their women issues as you (laughs) talked about in your story. There was no Lydia to help them. There was no Lydia for them. Um, And you know nowadays if you're in a relationship and you don't want to have kids and you and your husband can't agree on it you have options as a woman like divorce. Yep. But divorce was not a thing in 17th century Italy. I wouldn't think so. When women found themselves in these situations, like abusive marriages or forced to bear children after children, 
um, they would want to get out of it and like yeah. get divorced and choose option B or C, beg for money or go into sex work. But like divorce did not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is when we have to move to a new plan. I'm, I feel like I know what this plan is. And the plan is to become a widow. Yep. <laughs> and society was so much friendlier to widows. Yeah. They could live pretty peacefully. Poor thing, lost and her husband. I know. <laughs> so here we enter. One Julia Tofana. Okay. Um, Julia was a Sicilian woman, a woman who lived and worked in Palermo in the first half of the 17th century. And then uh, history says she moves to Rome. Not a whole lot known about her because she kept herself pretty hidden from the public eye based on what I'm going to tell you. Yeah. Um, Plus it was the 17th century. Right. So <laughs> I feel like it was easy to go. And um, so we don't know a lot about her family. It's all kind of rumors. We don't know a ton about her early life except... They believe she spent time working in apothecaries growing up and learning the art of medicines. Uh, and this is where she began to kind of dabble with different chemicals and create her own concoctions. I told you our Just themes, like Lydia. I told you. <laughs> we, we did not plan this. Our stories are just very on trend. Um, and at a fairly young age, she was forced into a marriage and she had a young daughter herself. And... She came to realize that she might need a way out of her marriage. And she developed this concoction that was successful. And other people start to he- started to hear about it. And she kind of slowly grew a following. Okay. Um, <laughs> I know. It sounds crazy. I'm going to get there. So, Julia decides, well, I can't just open up like a a poison shop that's you can't no (laughs) so julia opens up a cosmetic store okay and in this cosmetic store uh you know she does sell makeups of all kinds and ointments and i mean it is a store that women would frequent right right so but it really is a front for her her legitimate business Mm -hmm. of the local widow maker she uh, was like a poison speakeasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so the product that she creates and the one that is associated with her name um, throughout history is called Aqua Tofana. You're looking at me like you've heard of it. It, like, kind of rings a bell, but, like, not, like, I, I don't know. It just, like, it's one of, it, like, sounds familiar. Yeah, I know. I thought the same thing, and then I don't think I knew the details, but yeah. it, I... I feel like I've the, heard the plot somewhere. Anyways. I've heard, I feel like I've just heard that name, but I'm, I don't know So, where. Aqua Tofana is a concoction or a poison or a liquid that was laced with three main ingredients. Arsenic, lead, and belladonna. That sounds intense. Yes. Um, <laughs> it was quite effective. So, the, the basic gist of how this poison worked and then I'm going to get into some of the other details a woman would would go and visit Julia at her shop purchase this poison 
bring it home, and then you would administer it over multiple doses. It usually took four doses to become lethal. Um, and in many cases, it would be put into, like, the wine at dinner. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if a husband didn't drink, it would be put into soup. It had to be administered into, like, a liquid. Yeah. Um, but most stories, it's typically used in wine. Yeah. Which is... Your time. Well, yeah. That's how, <laughs> that's how it goes. Um, and so here's how it worked. After the first dose, a husband would start to get some cold-like symptoms. Okay. Not a big deal. Yeah. Sick for a couple days, maybe, you know, stomach cramps, whatever. Then after the second dose, a weakness would kind of start to take over the husband's body. And at this time, the wife might call for a local doctor, right? Her husband's really not feeling well. Headaches have set in. The doctor will come, do an exam. Oh, it's just a cold. Here's some, like, cold remedy. Uh Like, you'll feel better in a couple days. Rest. You're fine. Then the wife would give a third dose of Aquatafana. Um, the third dose is where, like, it really starts to hit yeah. the husband. Now they're going to have more, like, internal burning of, like, like their stomach is going to feel like it's on fire because, you know, the arsenic and the belladonna are really starting to get into those organs. Um, you might have, like, vomiting, diarrhea, like... yeah. Almost like food poisoning, like symptoms, but to an extreme. And at Sounds this like point, they're getting COVID. I know. At this point, the the wife would call the doctor back. You said he'd be better. Wait, what? What yeah. is wrong? And the the doctors were always perplexed. They didn't know why the remedies weren't, weren't working. working. Like he should be better. I don't know what's mm-hmm. going on. You need more rest. You need more rest. You know. Um, there weren't like x-ray machines or blood tests being happening in the 17th right, right. century. So much um, easier to get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then by the fourth dose is usually the husband would die yeah. after the fourth dose. So a wife really could administer this quickly over like four days or over a couple weeks, um, which is typically how it happened. There'd be a couple days between doses. Um, I feel like that is smart because then it's like, oh, he was just getting sick. Like, it, it's not like a sudden, like, he was healthy and all of a sudden he just dropped dead. It's like a smart way to go about it. Right. Um, so there is in – I found a blog that wrote about Aquatafana. And in this blog, um, it's mike-history.com. He actually references another journal, Chambers Journal, and they had, like, such a good description of what the experience of Aquatafana was. Um, and it's not too long. It's, like, two paragraphs. But I I really just want to read it because I couldn't write it any better. And I figured this primary source was great. Yeah. Okay. So, administered in wine or some other liquid by the flattering Tatris... Aquatafana produced but a scarcely noticeable effect. The husband became a little out of sorts, felt weak and languid, so little indisposed that he would scarcely call in a medical man. After the second dose of poison, the weakness and languor became more pronounced. Um, 
And then it goes on, like I said, the husband, or they would call a doctor, blah, 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 blah. And then the third drop would be administered and would prostrate even the most vigorous man. The doctor would be completely puzzled to see that the apparent simple ailment did not surrender to his drugs. And while he would still be in the dark as to its nature, other doses would be given uh, until death would claim the victim for its own. Now, this is why I really wanted to read this part. Because okay. this is this is the, like, the genius behind Aqua Tavana. Okay. To save her fair fame, the wife would demand a post-mortem examination. Which would always result in nothing. No foul play. Like... There would be no trace of the poison. No trace of Aqua Tavana. It was, like... It would just naturally do what it did, and like they could never find a trace of it. So the woman wow. would not be able to be slandered by family or the town that she did anything, and like she could then claim like the money and the property and the everything yeah. and move on with her life. Um, Damn. Yeah. And everyone would just assume that the husband died of a terrible cold or inflammation. Um, and then, like, just just live her life. On. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I just think it's really like smart. Um, yeah. I, if you're going to administer poison and kill your husband, <laughs> which, um, which we do not recommend, which we don't condone. So I just want to talk about the ingredients that went into Aqua Tofana. Okay. Um, arsenic, we've heard of. We yep. know it's dangerous. Lead, not recommend for consumption. Yeah, you probably shouldn't eat that. And then belladonna, which I didn't know a lot about. I've heard about it, but I didn't really know what it did. I actually have no idea what it is, and I, I didn't want to sound dumb, so I didn't ask. <laughs> well, let me tell you. So belladonna in Italian actually means beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. And it is a type of berry, a nightshade berry. And at the time, belladonna was actually used in a lot of cosmetics. Um, they take the liquid of the berry and you would put a tiny drop into your eyeballs and it dilates your pupils. It's actually something that they now use at like ophthalmologists. Oh. To dilate your pupils. However, it is very dangerous if used in large doses. Okay. (laughs) So, that's why, like, they only put... It's it's mixed with other things at the Mm -hmm. ophthalmologist, and it's, like, you know, they don't do a a lot of it. But at the time, um, dilated pupils were seen as, like... um, Like, the height of beauty in Italy. It's a fashion trend. So, Belladonna was very easy to get your hands on. Okay. Especially as a cosmetic store. Mm-hmm. And then she would just add the arsenic and the lead and sell it. Um, now, Julia was a very smart businesswoman. And she operated her business for over 50 years. Oh, wow. Yes. And that was in two reasons. One, she was good at it. And uh-huh. there was never, like, a failed Aquatafana like it didn't work. Yeah. And two, the women in Rome at the time trusted her. 
Um, and no one ratted her out. I was going to say, like... Because if you ratted her out, you would then be subjecting yourself to have used her services. Right. So, no one exposed her, um, and that's how she got away, away with it. But the actual poison itself also was bottled and sold in such a way that it just hid in plain sight. So, the poison... First, she tried to do a powdered version, and she would put it into compacts and sell it as, like, a compact that women could put Mm. on their vanities. Okay. And no one was any wiser at this makeup sitting on a dressing table. Men weren't going to try the makeup. Right. Like, it was very safe and could be hidden in plain sight. Right. Um, But over time, it got harder to get the powder, you know, to mix properly into... The liquids like wine that it was it was going oh, into. It would take a lot of mixing. Yeah, and, yeah. So her consumers wanted a liquid version, and so Julia changed her her bottling technique. She perfected the liquid poison, and she then started to bottle it in tiny vials that again would look very normal on a cosmetics vanity. Um, She even went as far as to put labels on them and to, um, like, they were often labeled as creams or ointments. And then she would put directions on it that were the real directions for Aquatofana, but could also be misconstrued as the directions for, like, an ointment or a cream. So it would say, like, step one, use one to two drops like at right. night and like people like no one knew that it was a deadly poison that's very clever so nothing weird going on just shopping at the just local ointment. cosmetic store so no one was suspicious of julia no one was suspicious of the women but it was like this woman hood of secret secrecy like yeah. everyone not everyone the women knew what Julia was offering, mm-hmm. and if they needed her services, they went to her, but then no one ever ratted her out. Wow. I know. And For so... 50 years. I know. Wow. And people often wonder, like, why did she do it? Because she was obviously putting herself at risk yeah. every time she did this. You never knew if you were going to get the one person who was going to tell on you yeah but she was very sympathetic to lower class women who were stuck in terrible marriages and she had found a solution and could solve these women's problems and she felt compelled to do it um and another another thing that i just love about aqua tofana because aqua tofana was such a slow working poison and it would happen over the process of four doses it gave men time to get their affairs in order so if they didn't have a will they could have written a will if they wanted to repent some sins they had time to like it it made the women feel less guilty about killing their husbands because like they had time to like prepare but also, they made sure that they were getting what they wanted. What they wanted. Yeah. So it's just kind of this very strange place to be in. Like, I don't uh, 
agree with murdering your husband, but I also empathize yeah. with it. Okay, so how how does the story end? She she does run this business for 50 years, but at one point she does have a customer go rogue. Um, and so even though she vetted her customers, you had to like kind of know someone to get in. Um, one of Julia's new customers does buy the Aquatafana and administers it into her husband's soup um, one night. And as he goes to sit down and start eating, the wife is overcome with guilt and immediately starts telling her husband he has to stop eating. And he's like, what do you mean I have to stop eating? Um, and he becomes very physically abusive. She, like, doesn't tell him. She's just like, you can't eat anymore. And he, like, demands to know why and becomes physically abusive to a point that she eventually tells the truth that she had poisoned the food. Um, and there, then he takes her to the police and the police torture her until she tells them where she got the poison. So it wasn't someone being a dick, like they it it just was unfortunate that this woman It was like she yeah, she like got cold feet. Yeah. And then her husband took her to the police and then yes. So as this is happening, like all of a sudden women in the town like find out because you know gossip spreads pretty quickly yeah. and women want to protect Julia because if it gets out that this is something that's gone on for years there's going to be lots of questionable deaths Yeah. Plus if the police tortured this woman they could torture her and get names out of her. Yes. So Julia is tipped off that her name has been given to the police so she packs up real quick uh-huh. and she flees Um, And she takes refuge in a church. And the church takes her in and is protecting her. But it gets to a point where the church comes under so much fire. And people are coming to the church and demanding Julia's release. And by people, I mean men. Yep. And then, like, other rumors start to flare up around it the way that gossip does. Right. So now people are spreading rumors that as like revenge for them telling on Julia she has poisoned the water system so now like the whole town is afraid to drink oh my god because they think aqua tafana is been put into the water uh-huh. and so now in addition to the men coming to the church now women are starting to step up the church actually hands Julia over to the police um and she is tortured and she eventually confesses to her crimes mm-hmm. um, which I haven't mentioned specific numbers but how many deaths do you think Julia Tafana confessed to? 150. 600 Oh my god I was deaths. way low. Yes. I way low yes. that. So she confesses to being a part and she has meticulous records like she does not play she has every woman written down that she sold aqua tafana to wow um and 
1659, Julia Tafana is executed by hanging um, for her crimes. Uh, many of her clients in the following years would also oh, no. be punished because their husband, I mean, not their husbands, but in many cases, the families of the husbands or their new husbands uh-huh. would turn them in. Yeah. Um, so many women actually were killed. Oh, wow. Because of Aqua Tafana being told. Wow. Um, but Aqua Tafana's legend does not end with Julia. Um, it's noted she did have a daughter, um, and her daughter was also executed in, in 1659, but, like, the recipe continued. I think there were other, like, daughters and yeah. stuff. Um, and it's rumored that in 1791, while Mozart was on his deathbed, he is quoted as saying that he believes he was poisoned by Aqua Tafana. Really? Yes. Wow. So he thinks that's how he was killed. And, I mean, it's a, a rumor. There's no proof yeah. of it. But um, he bl- he thought he had been poisoned by Aqua Tafana. Oh, wow. By name. Um, and so he, here's my dilemma, like I mentioned a few minutes ago. I don't condone murder. Right. No. we No one should. <laughs> and, like, this season we are celebrating all of these badass women who are, like, inventors and creators and played a role in alcohol's history but I'm like still empathetic to Julia Tafana and I guess more I'm empathetic to the women that felt like they had no other choice but to use this product Um, because I'm sure a lot of them were in bad situations right you know that they were being abused and you know things like that and then the idea that everyone in until the end, banded together. Like, it was, like, this secret society of women that knew about poison Uh and, like, all chose to, like, keep it hush-hush. Like, I just love that aspect of, like, the female bonding. Um, Bonding over poison. (laughs) And, like, the protection of one another for so many uh, years. Right. Even if her death count rivals that of Al Capone. I mean, I think she and, has Al Capone beat. Yeah, well, he's he's estimated to be responsible for 600 deaths as Is well. Is he really? Yeah. I don't know why I didn't know that. Um, Still learning things about Capone. <laughs> and so, like, we villainize him, and I find it really hard to villainize her. Um, but she didn't do great things. I yeah. just... The idea of poisoning wine seems like such a classy... (laughs) A classy way to murder. A classy way to murder. If you have to murder someone. I mean, it feels very Game of Thrones to me. You know, I've only ever seen one episode of Game of Thrones. And it was that episode? And it was that episode. (laughs) Um, And a badass woman did it. Yeah. And then this is... And I, I briefly told you this when we had book club this week. Uh-huh. I am currently in the middle of reading a book. Uh-huh. And unrelated, I found this story a few weeks ago and was like, I'm going to do this story for this season. Then I started reading this book, and it's called The Lost Apothecary. Uh-huh. I think it's Sarah Penner. And it's so good, and it's so similar 
to the story of Aqua Tifana uh-huh. that like I googled was she inspired by it and she has come out in interviews saying she was not inspired by it but there are so many similarities uh-huh. so her book is fictional but it like very much is in this realm and this idea. So if you enjoyed this story about Julia Tofana and Aqua Tofana, but want to read a fictional, like, historical fantasy book, The Lost Apothecary is, like, right in his vein. Okay. Um, I do have a couple sources. Okay. Um, So Mike-History.com is the blog I mentioned earlier. The article is called Aqua Tofana, Slow Poisoning, and husband killing in seventeenth in the seventeenth century, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then where I got inspired to do this story was off a YouTube video. Okay, that I watch. It's Murder and Makeup Mondays. Nice, but it. Bailey Sarian. She does. It's a whole th- series she does every Monday. She mm-hmm. like gets ready, does her makeup, and tells a true crime story. I love it. Um, but uh, so I watched her video. A couple weeks ago, um, and like heard the whole story, and then rewatched it this week in prep for this. But um, so that's a really fun like recommendation too. If yeah. You, like subscribe to her because she releases new videos every week. Yeah. Um, very true crime esque. Love it. Cool. I actually I really want to read that book that you recommended. I feel like I'm gonna love it. And uh, that was fascinating. I know. It's not super alcohol tie-in, but, like, I couldn't not tell It's, like, it. up my alley. It's I up, enjoy it. It's up both of our <laughs> alleys. And so we just assume if we enjoy it and you're still here with us in season three, you, too, will enjoy it. Yes, you. I, I feel like our listeners will enjoy listening to Poisoned Wine stories. Yeah, Poisoned Wine and Badass Women Societies. Like, yeah. What more could we ask for? there's not much (laughs) I know know. so all right so as we introduced the first week but then took a break from for the second week we're gonna do kind of like a weekly feature of women in alcohol um and Laura you want to tell them who we're doing this week so this week we are focusing on a distiller in Washington DC called Republic Restoratives and they're a whiskey distiller correct well, they also or, do brandy and vodka. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, tried to do someone that distilled whiskey since we were drinking whiskey during the episode. Wanted to do a little tie-in. I'm going to read a little blurb of theirs from their website, and Laura will get into some of their different products. But it says, we are Republic Restorative Distillery. We celebrate an outspoken and disruptive attitude towards the production of quality American spirits. In life and in business, we are inclusive but opinionated. We are founded by friends, women-owned and led, funded by the community, and unafraid of challenging convention. Working with us means betting on the underdog. We aren't defined by being women-owned or crowdfunded, but it's the heart and hustle of our company. I love it. I love it, too. I actually found them, so like... I'd heard of them because of some of the different whiskeys they brew. And then I had kind of forgotten about them and then refound them again. We are looking up women owned companies, 
But for a long time, they had a, a Rodham rye when they thought Hillary was going to win. They like made this special rye blend. Oh, cool. Um, back in, what is 2016? Mm-hmm. Um, but on their website right now, they uh, have a whiskey that makes me want to drive to D.C. and purchase <laughs> because you can only get it from their distillery. But it is called Madam, and obviously it was made special for Kamala Harris. So it's uh, Madam Vice President. What a difference one word makes. It breaks glass ceilings. It paves the way for a generation of new leaders. It turns never been done to did. So they made this to commemorate the inauguration of, you know, our current and first female black and South Asian vice president. Um, And I just love that a lot of their bottles and their, the things they just still have like a meaning behind the label and purpose um, celebrating and being inclusive. So I love it. They also, we we can order their stuff except for that one. Right. That's that, that one's decent like at their distillery only. Right. They do, they do have some national, um, like you can order and ship nationally some of their items, but not their more like niche things like the madam. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they also do an apple brandy. They have a vodka, a bourbon. Um, I believe they have another kind of rye now. That's not the Rodham rye, but. Purpose rye. Oh yeah. Purpose rye. So I just, I love a company that not only is women owned, but also is just giving back to the community and like standing behind what they believe in and just doing awesome shit. Yeah. I also really like their labels. I'm like looking right now um, at the different bottles and they're all unique looking like it's not like what, you know, like all the labels look the same for each of their types of alcohol. They're all unique and I love them all. I know. So we will definitely be shouting them out on Instagram. Um, so if you are near DC, definitely stop by and support them. And if you are nationwide and looking to order some new liquor, we would recommend Republic Restoratives. I was going to say, if you live in the D.C. area and you uh, want to buy the Madam for us and, and send it to us, we won't be mad. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. But we also hopefully, again, now that vaccines are going out and I'm going to be vaccinated soon, hopefully again we can travel soon and and maybe go to this distillery in D.C. ourselves. Yeah, but definitely check them out on Instagram as well. They are Republic Restoratives. And make sure you're following us on Instagram. We are at a tap on the wrist. And as we said earlier in the episode, um, if you have any story ideas, if you know of a female distiller um, or brewmaster or anyone that's, you know, currently modern day involved in the alcohol industry and you think that they deserve a shout out, let us know at tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. And we will see you next week. Cheers.